This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Have those COVID cards ready, L.A. The indoor mandates kick into gear today, and while there will be a bit of a grace period on enforcement, businesses are already getting ready to play the role of vaccine police, so we will go in-depth. Big music festivals with tens of thousands of people They're not a new phenomena. So what went so tragically wrong at the Astro World Festival in Houston, where eight people were killed in a crushing surge? We will take a look at that. Welcome back to America, foreign travelers, COVID booster restrictions, um, border restrictions, boosters. <laughs> COVID border restrictions are dropped as long as you are vaccinated. President Biden's backdoor vaccine mandate for the larger businesses put on hold by an appeals court could be the first of several legal speed bumps. And then the big infrastructure bill that's finally on its way to Mr. Biden's desk. What is actually in there? We'll take a look. See, we have boosters on our mind. That's right. Now, I went, I was mentioning this uh, to you before, uh, some places got a head start. I I went to a, uh, a movie theater at the Grove. I won't say which one, AMC. Uh, and they had big signs uh, in the lobby saying on Saturday you need to be uh, vaccinated and show proof. And they were doing it, and it pretty you know went pretty smoothly. A couple of people were tossed. <laughs> so you know, so uh, couples split up. <laughs> couples split. Yeah, one couple did split up. <laughs> Probably for good, is my guess. Stuart Waldman is president of the San Fernando Valley Industry and Commerce Association. Stuart, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So the day has arrived. I was just—you probably heard me just mentioning to to Mike. I was a little surprised that one theater uh, already was implementing this policy on Saturday. It was crowded, but it went. I have to say, it went pretty smoothly. Most people were able to show it at the door when they presented their tickets. One or two people were told, "Sorry, can't come in," and they left. So, uh, what do you anticipate? Yeah, I, I had the same experience. Uh, I was at a sporting event over the weekend and saw people being turned away. Uh, but it was pretty interesting. Uh, I, I think businesses, it depends on the size of the business. I think businesses are prepared. Uh, it's pretty simple. Just show your card or show your uh, uh, app uh, and you can get in. Uh, the harder thing is having the people there to do it. When it comes to businesses, there are times that they get slammed and it's just really hard. And you have people who are waiting who want to get in and and uh, patronize that business. Uh, having to show the vaccination card just takes a little more time and agitates people. Yeah, I mean, do you expect that to be the major problem rather than people actually putting up fights over whether or not they have to have one to come in? It's just going to slow things down or businesses don't want to th- turn people away because people are going to get used to this. I mean, word is already getting out, you know, hey, it's time or, you know, by the time you go somewhere this week, some place you go is going to ask you for it. Yeah, I think that uh, people are going to get used to it. People are going to make sure that they're carrying it. They're going to make sure they load it on their phone. Uh, I saw people around me uh, trying to download uh, their card to their phone uh, <laughs> to make sure they get in. Uh, even though Where's that email? I got to find it. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Everyone was told before you need to do it. Uh, They didn't. Uh, So I think people will get used to it. Um, You're always going to have people who want to fight. You know, if you go on social media, you're always going to see people talk about their rights and 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 all of that. Uh, The hard thing is you've got minimum wage employees who are going to be the ones who have to enforce this. 
and who are going to have to turn people away. And they're the ones who are going to get yelled at. It's not their policy. Uh, so, you know, it's a shame for some of the workers. And I know there are people who are trying to look at possible uh, enhancements if some, anyone attacks somebody for um, asking for their card. But people are just going to have to get used to carrying it. I mean, and, and here's the thing, right? I mean, there isn't a, a law that has ever been created that's enforced 100%. I mean, you know, not every place is going to be able to to have the staff, as you mentioned, to check vaccination status. Not every place is going to be caught if they don't do it. Uh, but the whole idea, isn't it, is to just encourage people to get vaccinated to begin with by saying, if you want to go to a whole bunch of places, you're going to need it. Right, exactly. And and I, as we all heard during lockdown, there were businesses that opened up, even though they were told to stay shut. Those businesses aren't going to ask for cards and they're probably going to uh, put up a sign uh, saying that they're opposed to uh, asking and they're not going to ask and you know, tell L.A. County and L.A. City to come get them. Uh, <laughs> and that's going to be interesting to see what happens. Will there actually be enforcement? Stuart Waldman, president of the San Fernando Valley Industry and Commerce Association. Thanks. When we come back, big music festivals have prided themselves on safe crowd control for decades. So what went so tragically wrong at the Astro World Festival in Houston this weekend? You're listening to KNX In Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, improvements could be coming to a road, a bridge, and airports near you. The infrastructure bill will get a better sense of what's in that massive piece of legislation. Before that, foreign travelers, they are coming back to America. Right now, though, there were apparently plenty of warnings and concerns leading up to the Astro World Music Festival in Houston Friday night. The chief of Houston's police department reportedly met with rapper Travis Scott. That's the man performing, of course, on the Astro World main stage when eight people were killed by the crush of the crowd, and uh, the chief expressed his worries. So what went so horribly wrong? Steve Allen is founder of the consultancy firm Crowd Safety in the United Kingdom. He has set up security and crowd control measures for touring groups like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Eminem, Beastie Boys, a lot more. Steve, thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. So uh, you've had, I'm sure, some time from a distance, but still some time with an expert eye to evaluate and look at what went wrong. What do you think went wrong? Oh, look, you know, at the moment, it's, it's so hard to speculate. Um, they're obviously doing a thorough investigation, or at least starting that. And there's many contributing factors. Um, first and foremost, obviously, thoughts are with the family and friends of those that have passed away and those that are injured. Um, but I can assure your listeners that there will be a thorough investigation which is happening at you know the highest of levels. Um, when a tragedy like this happens, uh, immediately we turn to the thoughts, what could have prevented it? You know, wherever there's a crowd, there's always a risk. A hometown show that sells out so quickly is always a high risk event an event where you've got a crowd, an audience profile, should I say, which is notoriously um, energetic, shall we say, and with an artist that may be encouraging that energy, it's a higher risk. And as such, measures can be implemented, such as a show-stop procedure, the show-stop team uh, that's there to monitor the crowd uh, from an elevated position. 
and then uh, give real life dynamic assessments to identify if that crowd is in distress. Um, I'm unaware whether that was in place uh, at this actual performance, but um, you'd hope that it was. Yeah, and that's one of the main questions, right, is why wasn't this whole thing stopped sooner? Why did it go on for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes or however long it was after there were signs that, that something wasn't right? Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly the snippets that I've seen on the, uh, the mainstream media does suggest that there were early warning signs. And, uh, you know, again, I'm not unaware if there was a showstop team. You'd like to think that there was most definitely because, you know, we're 2021 now and the showstop procedure has been going on for a couple of decades at major events worldwide. So, um, you know, certainly the shows that we've stopped shows uh, performances on temporarily, the early signs of a crowd in distress in that embryonic phase, there's an immediate fluid process that stops the shows. And, you know, we know for a fact that we've definitely saved lives by implementing this procedure. And the artists that we've toured with, we're all completely, you know, compliant with that, recognized it and fully supported it. Well, wasn't there, and correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't there a, uh, uh, a major incident kind of like this decades ago involving, I believe it was The Who, and, and did that not lead to uh, standards for having to deal with these sort of crowds at these sort of events that have been kind of universally accepted? And, and what are they? Yeah, so uh, in Cincinnati, though, who had the tragedy during their um, sound check, where I believe the, uh, the crowd were under the impression that the, um, the band had started to play and uh, rush the doors. Um, but there's been a number of incidents worldwide, not just in the US, you know, the UK have had their fair share, Europe uh, for live concerts and indeed other areas in the world. And each time we learn from it and, uh, and that's the, the way forward. There's a lot of safety professionals out there, but um, you know, from our side particularly, we take the safety of the crowd very seriously. We're certainly not yes men. We don't pander to you know, the desire of an artist who, who doesn't want to be compliant on crowd safety, for example, or a promoter that, maybe suggesting that, you know, you do it this way or you won't get the next show. Um, you know, we stick to our guns and which is why we've been sought after by, you know, some of the biggest brands out there because they want to ensure that their crowds are safe. And that's certainly not mocking anyone else. You know, there's a number of other professionals out there that take it very seriously. And indeed, as I say, all the artists that I've ever worked with, they, um, they genuinely take the safety of their crowd seriously. Steve Allen there, founder of the consultancy firm Crowd Safety in the UK. Steve, thanks. So could Travis Scott, the performer on the main stage, when all of those fans were killed at the Astro World Festival, face criminal charges? We'll get into that when we come back. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. A little bit later on, young students are going to have to really try for a D or an F grade in their classes because the COVID pandemic and a lost, a lost academic year is leading to big grading reforms. We will explain that. Also, the Biden administration's COVID vaccine rule for workers at bigger businesses runs into its first legal obstacle. 
Right now, back to what happened at the Astro World Festival in Houston. Uh, superstar rapper Travis Scott on stage when that surge of the crowd uh, happened and eight fans ended up dying. Uh, not the first crowd control issue for Scott. With us now, L. James Krell, personal injury and criminal defense attorney based in Houston. So thanks for talking to us. Uh, give us the view on what kind of legal liabilities there could be here. We've already seen, what, two or three lawsuits filed. Um, first, let me say thanks for having me and also say that our hearts and our prayers go out to the families of all the victims that were involved and, and the kids that were there that it became a scary incident. There has been approximately, I think, eight lawsuits now that have been filed. Um, HPD is doing a criminal investigation of um, not only Travis Scott, but Live Nation, the promoters, everybody that had any type of responsibility or control over the event. However, in Texas, our our riot statute is a little bit different than say in Arkansas where Travis Scott was already charged with inciting a riot a few years prior. Um, he's probably going to have a defense that he was there to give a concert. And because it was a, an entertainment event um, and he didn't actually participate in the violence, he's probably not liable under our criminal statutes, but where that will become incredibly important is the civil liability because if you can point to a criminal statute in the state of Texas, um, you're able to get negligence, then gross negligence, and then punitive damages in the civil suits. So is the strategy in these sort of things for the people who are suing, you just kind of like sue almost everybody you can. You kind of, kind of like you throw lots of darts at the dartboard and whichever one happens to, to stick you go with? So in, in most cases, that's correct. And some of the, the pleadings that we've seen come out today evidence that very well. Some of them have not only included Live Nation, Travis Scott, Travis Scott's record labels, his promoters, but they've also included Drake, who was merely a guest at the performance. So it seems that some lawyers have taken the, the kind of throw the kitchen sink at it uh, approach, and some have stuck to Travis Scott and Live Nation um, only. So you mentioned Arkansas, and that's where he told fans to, to jump the barricades and then, then got arrested for that. So that's doing something active. But what about not acting at all? You can argue from the other side, right, that the one person who can really call for a pause or to stop the whole show is the guy that's on stage performing and that he should have or could have, or maybe they can show that he did notice that something was, was happening out there. And we've seen plenty of videos posted lately in light of this of other performers where they've seen people faint and they shut everything down right away. Absolutely. So in Texas, when you have a civil lawsuit, you don't have to have a, a positive contact or force that creates the civil liability. His omission by itself um, is probably what gives rise to a civil liability in this point. There's you know, several videos where it seems that the crowd has caught his attention and he had opportunities to stop. There's videos where you see people being carried out of the concert. You see ambulances driving through the crowd and he failed to stop. And I think that when you take his past conduct with telling people to jump barricades, I think there was a, a um, tweet that he put out before this concert um, saying that they were going to sneak the rowdy fans in. And it's also come to light today that HPD spoke to him prior to his performance, saying that the crowd was already becoming aggressive and out of hand. Um, and then he continued his concert for 40 minutes after HPD was trying to have the promoter stop it when it was deemed a mass casualty event. So all of those actions coincide with the history and a pattern of, of Travis Scott inciting a riot, basically, and becoming negligent and gross negligent for his fans' safety.
Does the city have any legal liability potentially? The problem that you're going to run into with suing the city in Texas is we have a very, very extensive what we call um, tort immunity statute. So basically, there's only a few instances that you can sue the city in. One of those being if the city is involved in a motor vehicle accident. The other one is that they have to know that there was tangible personal property that could be used to hurt somebody. And so in that instance, while it's probably unlikely that the city is going to be liable, a lawyer could draft some artful pleadings to get through and get <laughs> the city to trial saying that maybe there was some piece of tangible personal property that led to the injuries that the city was directing. L. James Krell, personal injury, criminal defense attorney based in Houston. Uh, later on in the show, uh, as we mentioned, we're going to talk about uh, because of the pandemic is becoming apparently much more difficult for some students to, you know, fail courses, get D's and all that. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. It has been more than 600 days since visitors from foreign countries were allowed inside the U.S. Today, that changes as long as the foreign tourists are fully vaccinated against COVID. One of the biggest restrictions relaxed today. Already long lines of cars at both Canadian and Mexican border checkpoints early in the morning. Not only is this a big step in a potential return to post-pandemic normalcy, but it should also mean a very big economic boost to plenty of American cities like, oh, Los Angeles. Roger Dow is president and CEO of the U.S. Travel Association. Roger, thanks for being with us. Well, it's good to be with you. I was just out in L.A. last week, and now I'm in New York. Okay, so uh, New York, uh, L.A., among the cities that are really going to benefit economically, are they not from the return of foreign tourists and the exchange of people going back and forth between many countries and, and big cities and small cities in the U.S.? There's no question about it. L.A., New York are going to get a disproportionate higher amount of the travelers. They always go to big cities like that first so this is a windfall and much needed for jobs and for the travel industry and the economy in L.A. Is this pent up demand people want to see their people, their friends, their families? Or is it just, you know what, I haven't traveled internationally for a while. So who cares if it's, you know, off season, November, December, I'm still going. Oh, they're still coming at the uh, British Airways tells me their bookings are up 600 percent. Lufthansa, the same thing. The Mexican Airlines. I mean, it is going to be a monster. And it's all above. It's the families. 600 days since people have seen their loved ones in many areas. Well, we unfortunately have gotten some early signs that some of the airlines anyway are not maybe quite prepared for a larger number of passengers because they've uh, mothballed some of their planes and they've, uh, uh, you know, laid off some of their crews and it takes time to get them all back. But what about things like hotels and, and even, you know, restaurants? Are they prepared in major cities like New York and L.A. for a sudden influx of people who have not been here in almost two years? Uh, we're seeing it's uh, going to be a major challenge getting workers back to work. The hospitality and restaurant industry and airlines need people badly, uh, but they're getting ready. And the airlines uh, could have used a little more notice. They found out in September and they're ramp ramping up fast. I expect in another month everything's going to be booming and people are going to be here and they'll be ready. 
Is it going to be rough, though, for some people while all this kind of shakes out? Because you get here and you have to deal with the airlines and long lines there, and you get to the hotel and maybe there aren't enough workers, and then uh, housekeeping problems or the restaurant is full or slow service and all that that you just kind of have to contend with because we're not, you know, where we used to be. I think you hit on some of the concerns. I'm most concerned about getting people through customs and border protection and TSA. Uh, they're not going to be quite as ready as they could be. And so hopefully they'll ramp up quickly because this is going to be big and people will have some slowness initially. And hopefully we can work it out fast. Do you think that that people coming to the U.S. from other countries are being educated enough about the various requirements, depending on, on where you go uh, in terms of vaccination status. New York City requires it in many or most businesses. L.A. just started today. Uh, San Francisco has been doing it, I think, for quite some time. But it varies depending on where in the U.S. you are. You hit the nail on the head of one of the biggest challenges. I mean, I was, as I told you, out in L.A. last week. and It was different for L.A. as it was for Orange County. And it changes. And that's one of the biggest challenges we have. We've got to get consistency throughout the United States so people both domestically and internationally know what to expect. Where, where else are people going other than New York and, and Los Angeles? Well, they're getting ready to go hit the resorts, uh, the, the beaches, San Diego's going to do well. Florida will do very well. The Orlando's of the world, the uh, places like that. But it's going to be a lot of leisure and then business is going to come probably roaring back after the first of the year. Roger Dell, President, CEO, the U.S. Travel Association. Why would they want to go to any place other than L.A. or New York? That's right. Here, I mean, come here. It's like we're the best. That, that does it. I mean, you don't need anything else. <laughs> See America, Los <laughs> <Yeah>. Angeles, <laughs> and New York. Okay, uh, <laughs> coming up. The Grand Canyon's like, <clears throat> excuse me. It's a you know, if, if you haven't been to the Grand Canyon, it's a big hole in the ground. So the Biden, <laughs> the Biden administration. It's grand. Uh, I'm going to get emails. The Biden administration tried a regulatory approach to pressure America's workers to get vaccinated against COVID, and it just ran into its first legal obstacle. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. The Fifth Court of Appeals put the brakes on the Biden administration plans to use OSHA workplace regulations as a way to require employees of bigger businesses to get vaccinated against COVID-19. It was a, a backdoor way toward a national worker vaccination mandate relying on OSHA's regulatory power to set workplace vaccine rules. Now, Literally within hours of the OSHA vaccine rule going into effect, several prominent Republican elected officials sued to stop it. And the Fifth Circuit Court out of Louisiana put a stay on the rule until the case can be heard. Mark Kluger, employment and labor attorney at the law firm Kluger Healy. Uh, Mark, thanks for being with us. So this was expected, right? Uh, and what happens now? We do the legal dance of appeals and arguments and, and until this gets sorted out? No big surprise, guys, about this. But um, you know, the states' attorney generals from from various states have been uh, telegraphing that this is exactly what was going to happen. The legal dance is going to be uh, relatively quick, though. The, uh, the Fifth Circuit got the case, and on Saturday, on Friday, and on Saturday, made the decision uh, to to temporarily enjoin the emergency temporary standard. They're going to hear uh, they got. Briefs, I think uh, the end of business today, or they're going to uh, from the government, and they're going to have oral argument tomorrow to decide whether they're going to issue a permanent injunction for the Fifth Circuit. 
Is this uh, something that has potentially far greater ramifications than just COVID vaccinations? And and let me lay it out for a second, because uh, as I understand it, uh, the White House is relying on uh, OSHA's regulatory power that Congress gave it, right, to regulate workplace uh, safety rules. And so OSHA is now saying, well, one of the workplace safety issues is getting COVID. Therefore, you need to be vaccinated. If the court in the future, and let's say it goes to the Supreme Court, decides that this overstepped OSHA's boundary, might that lead to a, a situation where OSHA might lose some of its powers to regulate other safety issues in the workplace? Yeah, there's no question that there is a greater implication here than just this one particular regulation. But this is not new. Uh, administrative agencies, specifically at the federal level, have been engaging in what many see as legislative action for many years. And uh, some, in some instances, those things get beaten back, and in others, they don't. One of the more prominent ones uh, toward the end of the Obama administration was the change in overtime rates and the Department of Labor in this case, in that case rather, overstepped according to a federal court in Texas, and they enjoined on a nationwide basis the implementation of those rules. So yes, there is a lot uh, at stake here in terms of the administrative process and rulemaking and whether the courts will allow it to go as far as it has been. So what do you think? Is it written carefully enough? Because one of these various suits, it points to an idea that it's that's not. It's not connected to any previous language. It just kind of appears. Although, I mean, it can make sense to Charles's point. There's a clear risk of getting COVID. And if the rules are to prevent us from clear risks, then there you go. Yeah, Mike, the, you know, the OSHA has had a lot of broad authority to protect uh, workplace safety. Uh, even with its general rule, which is its sort of broadest rule, which uh, has been interpreted very broadly by courts over the years, that um, anything that can threaten the health and safety of an employee is an employer's obligation to protect against. So this will be um, this will be a real test of whether the courts believe that that level of authority belongs in the hands of this kind of agency or whether this is really something that a legislature has to do on either a federal level or state by state. And that's one of the uh, that's one of the arguments that's being made in many of the cases that are out there right now. I mean, is there anything that uh, the government could do, the federal government could do to try to limit uh, the scope of this to just the issue of COVID vaccines and not to, I don't know, if a business wants to in the future, for some reason, have asbestos in the ceiling uh, to say to OSHA, well, you can't regulate that anymore. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that they're going to be able to, you know, to, to narrow down OSHA's powers uh, that significantly. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, and I think that that's one of the ways that courts sort of escape uh, making these kind of really policy-like decisions where they can say, you know, that issue isn't ripe in this case. And so that's, you know, um, probably one of the ways in which perhaps the Supreme Court will escape having to make a broader decision than on an issue other than just the COVID vaccine. Because, you know, this is, and I think most lawyers would agree, is going to end up in the Supreme Court. 
Is there an out here where the government can say, you know, it's not technically a mandate because there is a testing option. You don't have to take the shot. You can just test and then mask and, and then, you know, be treated differently than the other employees. It certainly was the safer approach to go that way with the out of saying, we're not mandating anyone to get the vaccine. If you're not comfortable getting it, you still can do the, the testing. So yeah, I think that that was written carefully in order to sort of avoid the, you know, the more obvious uh, and more emotional argument that, uh, you know, you, you know, you can't force everybody to get a needle in their arm if they want to work in this country. OK, so but, but, but they've, if they've sidestepped it. That right, way. But, but if a business were to, say, uh, argue or, or one of these uh, uh, states, uh, state attorneys general were to argue that, well, you can't even mandate that somebody get tested. Isn't that kind of the same as saying on an, I don't know, a construction site, you can't mandate that they wear hard helmets? That's that's certainly OSHA's position on it. And that's certainly, you know, the government's position is that it's equivalent to that um, and maybe even broader than that. And that's, I think, again, one of the reasons that this was a very aggressive effort by OSHA, because if you think about the danger to the construction worker of not wearing a, a, a safety helmet, uh, maybe he's the only guy who, get bonk, who gets bonked in the head by the, you know, the falling debris and he's the only one who gets hurt as opposed to the implications for uh, an unvaccinated workforce in which a virus can spread to others who are not on that work site. Mark Kluger, employment and labor attorney at the law firm Kluger Healy. Mark, thanks for talking to us. More in-depth is on the way, another half an hour. We're back on KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. It sat languishing in the House of Representatives for almost three months, and it was ultimately passed and sent to President Biden's desk late on Friday night. So you may be forgiven for not really paying attention or knowing what's in the $1.2 trillion infrastructure overhaul bill that is about to become law. But the president's calling it a once-in-a-generation investment. So what will it do? How soon will you start to notice the infrastructure updates. Eliza Collins covers national politics and Congress for the Wall Street Journal. Eliza, thanks for being here. So if you were to separate it all into categories, what gets the most money besides like other or miscellaneous, which usually ends up getting a lot of money? Yeah, so this is a roughly $1 trillion bill. About half of it actually goes to existing infrastructure projects. So the projects that have already been put in place, it just extends, make sure that money does go to them. But the other half a trillion dollars is for new projects. It's a big deal. A huge chunk of that is going to like physical infrastructure. So over a hundred billion dollars is going to roads and bridges and those sort of things that you drive on every day um, across the whole country. I know the uh, White House and certainly the president is concerned that, you know, uh, Americans want to see something like ASAP that's actually happening. So it's one thing to have these giant... Pave my road tomorrow. Yeah, no, yeah. Exa right, exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's great that they're passing these giant bills, but they want to see some progress. When might people actually see either the beginning of improvements uh, starting or if you're a business, uh, you know, contracts rolling in, when does that actually kick in? 
So that's not right away. Yeah, your road's not going to get paved tomorrow. I mean, this has not been signed into law yet. Uh, it is expected that Biden will do that, but they have not even had sort of the signing ceremony. So that has to happen. The money needs to be distributed to the different states. They need to allocate it to the projects that they see fit. So we're still months away. And that does concern some Democrats, especially vulnerable Democrats who come from states and districts where they might have a tough time that voters are not going to get to see the results, get those jobs, get the better road by the time the uh, midterms roll around next year. How much in the category of green or eco-friendly made it into this in the end? You know, I have to look up the exact number, but it's much smaller than many progressives would like. Um, and so per, basically there is some money to for like electric vehicles, but it's just really small. Uh, some money to weatherize buildings, update the electric grid, but those are basically, progressives are saying it doesn't do nearly enough that needs to happen to combat climate change. Democrats are hoping for much more of that to go into their larger social climate healthcare bill that they're currently working on, uh, which is gonna be closer to $2 trillion. But this was really more focused on that physical infrastructure and less on combating climate change. Yeah, I was, I was gonna you know, mention that, that you know, we folks in the, in the media, we, we kind of follow uh, the nitty gritty and you know, different bills and they've passed the infrastructure bill, but they haven't yet really uh, dealt with the, uh, well, they've dealt with it, but they haven't dealt with it successfully, the social safety net uh, measures. Uh, but a lot of, I think, public, you know, sort of doesn't distinguish between the two. And so they're going to see all the headlines about all this trillions of dollars being spent. And they're going to say, well, yeah, but uh, what about my health care? Is that going to improve? What about my Medicare package? Is that going to improve a whole host of, of social issues? That's still on hold, right? Absolutely. And that's a real challenge for Democrats and messaging, right? They, there are all of these things that if you pull them individually are actually quite popular. Um, but voters don't know what are on those bills. They don't know the status of those bills. Um, Biden, basically, this is a five plus trillion dollar agenda. If you include the two trillion dollar of COVID relief money that was passed right when he came into office, this is basically $3 trillion with that infrastructure package, and then they're debating $2 more trillion on that health care, on social programs like free um, pre-K and child care. And that's sort of the third chunk that's still being debated. We don't know if that will be passed, but Democrats have to figure out a way to explain to voters the differences in those programs, and then also what's passed, what's not, um, and all of that. And they've got an uphill battle next year definitely going into the midterms. Eliza Collins covers national politics and Congress for The Wall Street Journal. I used to teach. I used to give out occasionally a D or sometimes regrettably a, an F. Some students just failed their courses. But when we come back, we're going to find out that it may not be that easy in the future for that to happen.
You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So the pandemic affecting all aspects of our lives. Students, though, have had one of the roughest roads through all this. Major academic, emotional setbacks. Not only are the average test scores for the standardized tests dropping, but educators are handing out more Ds and Fs than before COVID. So to increase student morale and promote learning objectives, many teachers have decided to move away from traditional point-driven grading to increase equity. Joe Feldman is a grading consultant at the Crescendo Education Group and has worked in education for over 20 years as a teacher, principal, and district administrator. Joe, thanks for being with us. Uh, I don't think we're related, and if we are, my condolences. <laughs> thanks. Maybe way, way back. That's <laughs> possible. Uh, let me ask you, though. I, I mentioned during before the commercial break, I used to teach at the university level, and I gave, you know, not many, but I did give Ds and, and an occasional uh, F for failure to some students. What's wrong with that? Yeah, well, I think a common misconception is people to start thinking about this work is that, well, it's just lowering standards and we're saying all Ds and Fs are bad and students can never receive it. Like none of that is true. What we are saying is that we recognize that in traditional grading, what we do is what we've done is that we've included lots of non-academic aspects of students' lives and in doing so disproportionately made it harder for students who have fewer resources. And so what this work is really about is trying to make it where the grade is really only reflective of what a student knows, not their life circumstances. So what are some of those circumstances and what have we learned more about those over the last you know, year and a half plus? Yeah, I mean, in the pandemic, you know, we teachers learned a whole lot more about the complexities of our students' lives and saw, you know, often through a Zoom screen that, well, gosh, you know, this student has, you know, three younger siblings who are who they have to take care of every day. And so it may be that they don't complete the homework every day on time, but they still learn. So if a student is able to learn the content, but isn't handing in every day's homework always on time, maybe we actually don't care whether or not they do the work, they do all the work, maybe we care about whether they learned. And so I think it helped us clarify that when we say something like, well, you have to always hand homework in on time, or you get low grades, that we're actually disproportionately hurting students who have more challenges in their lives and have more responsibilities and disproportionately making it easier for folks who have who come from higher resourced families and environments. Are you concerned or other teachers concerned that some students, maybe not all, but some students will look at this as a giant opportunity to take advantage of the situation? Yeah, you know, it's a very common worry um, that teachers have as you start to think about this, because I think a lot of us say, well, gosh, if you're not going to um, penalize students for not turning in homework on time, then everybody's going to turn it in late. And you'll just have all these kids who then never learn responsibility. And what we found as we've seen teachers do this across the country is that the opposite happens. What happens is that students realize that the reason why they need to get things done on time is not because they'll lose points, but because if they don't hand it on time, they're going to have more work to do and they won't learn as much and it'll make it harder for them. So in other words, students start to internalize the value of turning things on time. They don't just turn it in because someone's going to take off 10 points, which really starts to empower children and adolescents in a way that becomes much more um, helpful through their lives than just responding to this loss of points. So there's the worksheets, there's the reading. Uh, what about actual tests? How does that change under this kind of a grading scheme? Yeah, I mean, I think the traditional way of thinking about grading is that, well, you know, a student takes a test and they do, they get their score and that's the end of the story. And for a lot of students, they actually learn from taking tests. Um, and so what this work 
includes is the idea of having retakes and redos, which is actually how most of the professional world operates. You know, when I have to pass the bar exam, I get as many tries as I want. And same with medical boards and nursing exams. So what we're doing is saying the same thing. If you're going to take a test and you don't do well, you have the opportunity to learn from that and to continue learning and then to try again. Yeah, but it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting, though, Joe, that you should mention that because it, that's not the case, though, in all things. I mean, it may be the case for a lot of white collar jobs like, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, the bar exam or, or doctors and you have a chance to, to retake. But there are an awful lot of industries where, you know, if you if you don't co- you know complete the task that your boss wants you to complete on time, you're out the door. So it, it, is there that concern that depending on what that student may go on to do for a living, they may find themselves in an environment that isn't as accepting? Yeah, that's true. And I think one of the things that we find is that um, it often isn't so um, dramatic a consequence in the professional world. So, you know, if you come late to work and you're not signing in like for what you all do, um, the first time that happens, your boss will be like, hey, you can't let this happen. Or if you're going to have it happen, you got to let me know. And the next time it's like, well, we better have a plan to fix that. And then third time it's like, well, if you don't fix this in the next time, now you're going to be fired. And so it's really helping students, especially we're talking about 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds who are still kids in so many senses of the word. And how do we help have a more nuanced way of giving feedback and really helping them understand consequences of it rather than really just taking the shortcut and saying, you know, if you don't hand it in, you get a zero because that really doesn't teach them that much. In fact, the research shows that doing that doesn't motivate students at all. In fact, it demotivates them. And so what this work is about is aligning what the research shows and what the professional world, sort of the nuances of it and putting it into our classrooms. You got to make sure they actually learn, though, right, rather than just learn the test. So is there some idea that like instead of D's and F's, if at the end of the, the semester, whatever it is that the teacher doesn't think it's actually happening, you get you get the incomplete and then try again in, in summer school or, or what about that kind of a, a route? Yeah. So I think for uh, a lot of us during the pandemic realized that um, there are lots of things going on in students' lives which may interrupt their learning and we wouldn't want to. Um, sort of stop them from their learning and say, well, I'm sorry, your time's up. And so it's the end of the semester. And so since you didn't learn it, you get an F. And I think what we're becoming much more thoughtful about is that if a student has something that gets in the way of them learning, then we we would be, want to be one of the last people to say, sorry, sorry, you have to stop learning now because time's up. And could we actually think about ways to give you more time to learn and a second chance to learn? because that's what's really going to motivate students. You know, you don't motivate students by having them get Fs because they weren't able to complete everything. You motivate them by saying, you weren't able to do everything, and we still believe that you could keep learning if you want to. So why not give you the chance? How much acceptance of this is there among the ranks of teachers? Yeah, I mean, I think teachers are, unfortunately, um, we get no training at all in our graduate work um, in how to grade. We learn how to design lessons and create tests and manage classrooms, but there is hardly ever um, any coursework around grading. And it's really ironic because this is some of the most important kind of work that we do and has huge outcomes for our students. And so for a lot of teachers, they're so hungry to to get this kind of information that they never had access to. And they come with all the right skepticism and many of the questions you raise, and I'm sure many people have about, well, would this actually work? And I'd never had this and I did fine and 
all those things. And I think once they start to see the, the theory underneath these ideas and start to use them, they find that students are so responsive and they see improvement and engagement from students who had been totally disconnected in the past. Joe Feldman, Grading Consultant, the Crescendo Education Group. Joe, thanks. That's in-depth for today. We will be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.